Thank you for joining the Grim and Bloody podcast. Glad you're with us here. Uh, today we have Gary Sherman, director of Dead and Buried, Poltergeist 3, and Deathline, among others we'll talk about. Um, but before we get into Gary, and thank you very much for uh, spending your Monday uh, evening with us, Gary. Appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, let me go ahead and introduce my host, Joe Flynn, Create TV. How you doing today, Joe? Uh, doing fantastic. Awesome. Kevin Nicholson, writer for Horror News Net. And I believe you have some news also to share, right? A recent release. We'll touch on. Uh, well, it's, I, I don't know about uh, um, recent release, but I've got a book that I'm working on, which is uh, uh, Keeping His Head, the, uh, the films of David Warner, which uh, I just recently got all of the audio files, uh, David's contribution to the book. And I'm going to be spending the rest of the summer translating that into uh, uh, into text. In what a huge headache, but it's worth it. It's fun. Oh, I thought I saw news about a, a, a we believe a we belong dead release. Oh, that's actually not. Uh, I'm not part of that particular. Book. Oh, uh, I'm doing it for the uh, for the publishers for writing the word gotcha. on it. That's tutorial history of Hammer Horror. And that will be, that's currently on pre-order uh, from, uh, uh, from We Belong Dead. Go to, uh, uh, I think it's webelongdead.ca.uk uh, for pre-ordering. Uh, that is just all kinds of rare behind-the-scenes photos and rare posters and so forth. Uh, wonderful artwork for uh, the Hammer films and uh, uh, some our great writers writing stories about it and, and so forth you can get a hardback limited edition uh signed i believe i'm not sure if that's by the uh, uh by the publisher or uh or the editor or what or you can get a soft cover edition and uh that's gonna be you know, be fun no my uh, uh my next contribution will be for uh, uh coming up not for a little while. Awesome. Well, keep us abreast of uh, any and all news, Kevin. We'll definitely share it with us. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Al Omega, how you doing? I'm just horrified about having to touch uh, Kevin's uh, latest emission there. Uh, <laughs> his latest <laughs> offering. But other than that, other than that uh, we're moving ahead. We're doing some lovely upgrades for the set for a couple of gimmicks and some new set on the new lighting, I mean. And, uh, uh, and it looks like uh, I'm going to put up the new fence because uh, mom got out of the yard. So can't let that happen. <laughs> Never know who she's going to You got next. your mom chained up in the yard? I what? thought it was an animal when you first said that. I'm like, the dog got People out. People often think that about mom, that she's an animal. <laughs> but mom uh, got out. Enough, and she is feral at times. That sounds like but, my next uh, horror script I want to write. <laughs> Mom got out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I just uh, fleshed out the idea for a, a zombie flick uh, involving uh, the difference in racism and classism in a rich suburban area. So, is it not called Land of the Dead by George Romero? Huh? The racism what? and classism? Racism, classism, yes. Like you would have in, you know, as shown in this particular zombie movie. Yeah. Cool. I just gotta find a rich neighborhood, let me shoot and throw blood on everyone. <laughs> we'll have fun with that one. I'm gonna try. <laughs> well, Gary, 
Well, hello. Hi, Gary. Hello, hello. I'll say, hello. Um, I heard of, of Dead and Buried for a while. Um, I didn't, I've never gotten around to watching it until I heard that you were interested in the show and you were coming on. And um, I, I put it on and um, a lot of these classic film guys are available for streaming. And that's amazing, I'd have to say, um, because it used to be that you'd have to fish out a DVD at Rasputin Music if you wanted to see some like some old vintage horror. But you're seeing more and more of, uh, you know, the classic you know, 70s and 80s horror movies on, on Amazon. Uh, so that's pretty awesome. Uh, got to watch this and I was blown away. Um, I watched the entire thing. It, it had me riveted. Um, I thought it was an, it was a nice mix of kind of had that small town atmosphere. Um, I thought they were going to turn into like, you know, it, it had a, a, a take on zombies that growing up, the only thing you knew about zombies is that they wanted to eat you, right? They were either shambling towards you. We're going to break down your walls or they were running full sprint, right? Hopping over cars or you know in army of the dead uh they grew a conscious and created their own little uh habitat in which you had to uh you know bow to their rules but either way they were aggressive you know uh, i think in dead and buried uh, it had me thrown off because they were undead right they were alive but they weren't exactly you know trying to eat your brains it was you know it was a a fresh take i want to say fresh because it was you know it was from the 70s um or excuse me 81 um but it was a different take and i'm surprised i haven't seen uh this kind of uh version of, of zombies before so um I'll, I'll go ahead and throw out the first question um tell me when you were working with ronald shusett and um that's pretty awesome that it says from the makers of aliens uh that kind of gets you going like oh here we go um this was a completely different zombie story i wasn't prepared for and um, I was pretty blown away that I haven't seen this kind of take before. And um, did you want to talk a little bit about when you were making it? Were you were you conscious that we're doing something different here, or it was we're just we're making a film? Let's see how it goes, kind of a thing. No, it was never. <clears throat> we knew where we were going with that film from from day one. Nice. I um, you know, I had done Deathline in, in London, and then. Deathline got released in the United States as raw meat, completely recut and and really bastardized. And and I was so angry about that. I, I said, you know, the hell with it. I'm not doing any more movies. Um, I, I had a very successful career in commercials and, and television. And, um, and I really didn't need to make movies. And and so anyways, you know, it, it one day <laughs> I had just moved to Los Angeles from London and, um, and there's a knock at my door and it's this guy named Ron Chousset. Uh, <laughs> and Ronnie is standing at the door with a pile of scripts and says, my name's Ron Chousset. One day I'm going to be the biggest producer in Hollywood and I'm going to make a movie with you because you I said that really. <laughs> yeah, because I love Deathline, and and I have a great script that only the director of Deathline could do, and he hands me uh, Dead and Buried, and um, it was before, it was just before they started pre-production on Alien. Mm. Uh, Interesting. 
So anyways, the thing is that, you know, Ron and I played with that. We played with some other things. He also bought an old script of mine. Um, and uh, Ronnie and I just became really good friends. And, and, and Dead and Buried was the one, the one project that, that we really wanted to do. And what I liked about Dead and Buried was the fact that it was a whole different take on, on the undead. And, and, you know, for me, all of my films have been very political. I mean, they, you know, you guys were talking about classism and racism. I mean, th that's what Deathline was about. Deathline was basically about all the isms, and we can talk about that later. But um, uh, when I read Dead and Buried, to me, it was really a, a, a matter of, of, of making a statement about totalitarianism and, and you know, one person's will over everyone else's. And um, you know, in terms of a totalitarian dictatorship, which basically what is Potter's Bluff was. And, you know, Potter's Bluff was Dobbs's puppet show. And, and that's what, you know, what the whole thing about, uh, about Dead and Buried was. Because Dobbs was manipulating this whole thing for his own entertainment. You know, it's uh, interesting. You hear, I hear you talk about it. I haven't seen it in years, um, but that's not how I interpreted it when I saw it as a kid. What does your first? Well, you don't have to. That that's the great part about using horror to 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 make political message. You don't have to understand it. It's just there, and so you make a very scary movie. And it entertains people, but people who want to get further into it can get further into it. And that's why I think that this film has lived for as long as it's lived. Um, well, I certainly found it to be an, uh, an interesting, entertaining movie when I did see it. So you certainly succeeded there. Well, I mean, but you know, George, George always did the same thing. I mean, all of George's films, you know, George Romero, all of, all of his films had a very strong political undercurrent. And yes, it did. You can just watch them as a horror film, or you can watch them for the for what they say. Now, now if I can... oh, go ahead. Oh, so, uh, I was just you know thinking what stands out for me, and I, I I'm I'm always you know about um, characters, actors, performance stands out for me on uh, on this film is just Jack Albertson as Dobbs. <laughs> yeah. Comes across as benevolent but menace behind uh, you know uh, you know behind his eyes and um, talk a bit about working with Jack uh, on uh, on this particular film. Oh, Jack was a, Jack was a joy. I mean, when Ron and I were were working on the script and and, and you know getting into pre pre production, Jack Albertson was always our target. And you know, then we found out that he was quite ill, um, which you know, was disturbing. And we we met with him and he wanted to do he really wanted to do it he he really loved the part 
and he wanted to do it. And, you know, we had problems with our insurance company and, you know, and all of that uh, because everybody knew he was, you know, coming to the end. And um, we just decided to take the chance and do it. And he, he was unbelievable. He, he is just such a total gentleman and an amazing actor. And, you know, I'm, and I'm so proud to have directed his last movie. You know, his first movie was Miracle on 34th Street, was the first film he ever did. He was the um, postal worker who held up the envelope and said, hey, this envelope's you know, addressed to Santa Claus. We should send it to the courthouse. And um, that, that was his first film role, and, and Dobbs was his last. So, uh, But he was just amazing. I mean, he he was just such a trooper. He, he'd come on the set, and, um, and he'd dance and sing for everybody. Wow. <laughs> And he was just amazing. And, you know, he knew he was dying. He, he was, you know, he, the day that we did his last bit of ADR, um, he, uh, he came in the afternoon, he did his ADR. He and his wife and I went out to dinner. I went home that night and I got up the next morning and turned on the radio and I hear actor Jack Albertson was rushed to Cedar sinai Hospital early this morning and passed away. And uh, boy, that was just shocking. But the, the, absolutely the last thing he ever did was the ADR for Dead and Buried. I hate to say it, but if you take a look at uh, Jack, you, you realize the, he's such a, a Broadway-trained actor, uh, a, uh, a renowned actor in both stage, film, and also on television, Chico and the Man. Uh, subject was Roses, which is one of my favorite, uh, uh, you know, films. Right. You really don't see him, you know, terrifying audiences <laughs> like in this in this film, but he had. Seems like he has such fun doing it. Yeah, and he was such a gentle terrifier. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> nobody knows until the very end of the film that he is the source of all of this evil. Exactly. Exactly. You know, there's nothing there's nothing dire about him. There's nothing uh, you know, he, he, he's not some evil monster that's 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 creeping around. He's now on the, on the other side of it, you've got um, another just an outstanding performer uh, in uh, in my view, a very energetic, um, charismatic actor, James Ferentino, um, playing Sheriff Yellis. Was 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 James always the uh, the choice for you to play Dan Yellis? Yeah, J Jim Jimmy was 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 very much in our in our first choice list. Um, I, I always enjoyed Tarantino as an actor. Oh, oh he was great in this. Absolutely great. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. And he has an intensity that's it's unbelievable. Jimmy could could be so um, in, in you know right in your face. 
and you know the the fear uh, that that he could bring to his own character uh, was just amazing. I mean, those eyes, those eyes that he had, you know, that that intense gaze that he has, and the anger. Yeah. You know, but Jimmy, Jimmy was a very angry person, so <laughs> anger was not difficult for him. I mean, the movie starts when he is just this, this, um, this aggressive presence of a sheriff, this commanding officer, you know. Um, and when you get to the end, he's a, a whimpering mess. And um, this movie is almost like the, the deconstruction of the town sheriff, and when he realizes that everyone um, has been affected by this, you know, it, it might literally just be him that's left in the town. And when we get to that point, he has nothing left. And um, as much as it is this about Hobbs, or excuse me, Dobbs, I think it's just as much about, uh, I want to say the sheriff in this town, Sheriff Dan Gillis, because, um, you know, one kind of, it's a fall from grace. The other one is a rise from power. But it's really, it's just a realization that this is how it is. This is how it's be the whole time you know this is how it's going to be you know going forward and um i think the way dobbs kind of submitted to uh sheriff dan towards the end saying you know what you can kill me because i'm just going to join my children and it said with so much such a, a matter of fact such a confidence that that part to me was terrifying like yeah, well, how can you kill a villain when he's looking forward to death by killing him, you just make him stronger, right? Right. But you know, I mean, Dan, Dan was dead from the beginning of the movie, which exactly. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert which we don't <laughs> um, people had plenty of time to watch this. Okay, some point we gotta put the cutoff. <laughs> I mean, when he says, "Come, Dan, I'll fix those for you," I mean that's. <laughs> Now that does offer the critic a moment where I, I didn't see that the jump off from like the the skin irritations. I know at the end, um, everyone starts to have the the flaky skin, right? Where they they need uh, some maintenance, um, but we didn't see that with Sheriff Dan. He he was always picture perfect, right? About a third of the way into the movie, and it grows. Does it show? I just didn't notice. He's scratching his hand. Yeah. Mm. He's always scratching. He's always scratching himself or rubbing himself. Now I'm going to have to rewatch it. And it, he starts to do that more and more as the movie. Goes. Oh, damn. See, now I'm going to have to rewatch it. I'm going to rewatch it because I love those little moments where the director and the writer, they're putting these little eggs throughout the whole movie. And by the time you get to the end, you're like, well, yeah, it's been there the whole time right in front of you. Right. And you're just slapping yourself in the head like, are you sure? You are right. <laughs> so I'm going to have to rewatch it. Yeah, and Ferentino, I mean, he, he really got into that and he loved that idea. So he started adding it in places, but I just had to keep him because, I mean, we were not shooting in continuity. So I had to keep reminding him what day of the script it was of how much scratching he should be doing. Yes. <laughs> now, spe- uh, now, Stan Winston was involved in this and anybody who, who, who knows movies to any degree uh if you you see stan winston's name in the opening credits you're in for a treat you're absolutely okay 
I'm gonna be watching the best of the best involved. Um, this, this was this was Stan's first major movie. Was first, wow. Yeah, and I mean, I had seen a lot of Stan's work, and um, and uh, you know, and I and I had been a real fan of his. But you know, this was before he became Stan Winston. It was kind of Stan Who back then, <laughs> and and. Um, you know, th this was his chance for a showcase. And on actually, you know, there's a, uh, a 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray um, being released. Um, for Dead and Buried? Next week, yeah, of Dead and Buried from Blue Underground. No shit. It is amazing. And the extras on it are fantastic, including a half hour interview with Stan Winston which was done, I think, in 2003 or 2004 by David Gregory. And it was it was about his working on Dead and Buried. And it's never been uh, publicly released before. And it's, it's one of the extras on the uh, on the new Blu-ray. It, it's really I mean, I was blown away seeing it. I hadn't seen it before. And they sent it to me to look at and I just yeah, July 20th. Set for release. Yep. Three disc limited edition. Yeah, it's a three disc edition, and um, it, it's really amazing. I, I just got I just got sent my samples. <laughs> so do you do you think? Let me let me ask you, Gary. If I do you think that um, what do you think is the is the staying power of this film that forty years later we're talking about a four K. Uh, restoration DVD, a 40th anniversary. It is the 40th anniversary, and I've been, you know, had it not been for COVID, I was booked at film festivals this year all over the globe. I mean, you know, it's really mind-boggling to me. I, I go to these film festivals and look out at the audience, and most of the audience hasn't wasn't born when I made when I made this film. And, and now it's gotten to the point that their parents hadn't been born when I made this film. And, um, you know, this or, or Deathline. And um, it's, it's really mind boggling. And I, I think it's because, you know, I don't set out to make a horror film. I, may, I set out to make a really good film that's really scary. Not, and I'm not putting, I love horror films. So, but I mean, I, I take filmmaking um, very seriously, and and horror is my ch chosen genre. I, I don't make horror because you know it's the only thing they'll let me make. I make horror because I love it. I can and, tell you, uh, oh, I didn't want to cut you off, Gregory, but uh, horror in itself, and with the uh, world premiere of Dead and Buried coming in 4K, not a lot of horror makes it that far. Um, it'll make it as far as you know, Blu-ray. Um, sometimes they'll have the remaster, but yeah. Is your involvement? I kind of wanted to know your involvement with the uh, 4K. We can kind of talk about that release a little bit because um, it's coming up really quickly. Um, how involved were you with the restoration? Were you uh, present while they were redoing the shots, or you kind of left that up? Usually, it's left up to the the uh, director of photography to make sure uh, everything is good. Or did you also kind of use this as a chance to go in there and kind of uh, tinker a little bit? Maybe a little well, color correction, a little no. Bill Lustig was on the phone with me constantly. Unfortunately, you know, it was done last year during 
during COVID. So I, and I live in Chicago um, and they were doing it in Los Angeles. And so there was no way for me to get there. So, uh, cause I mean, I, I wasn't about to get on an airplane. And so th they were sending me stuff. They were shipping me things to look at. We were going back and forth. Um, I was on the phone with Bill when they were doing, you know, it was redubbed in, uh, uh, in, in Dolby Atmos. I mean, oh, it's going to sound amazing. It's going to sound amazing. It's going to look amazing. Um, you know, the whole thing in, in ultra HD Blu-ray, it's, it, it's absolutely fantastic. And I mean, they, they spent a lot of money making this, uh, making this release. And yeah, I was involved, I, you know, and then <laughs> here's another one of the extras that's absolutely mind boggling. When we were shooting the film, Brian Frankish, who was my first assistant director on the film, and Steve Poster, who was the DP, um, decided that the two of them bought uh, a Super 8 camera and they kept it loaded with film and they left it hanging on the dolly. And anybody who wanted could pick it up and shoot. And, you know, the only prerequisite was that you put it back on the dolly. And so everybody on the crew was shooting this Super 8 while we were making the film from day one to, to you know, to the last day of, of principal photography. And we, we shot for a couple of months on that movie. And so anyways, in the end, we had 15 hours of, of Super 8 film, and uh, which, we, which we showed at the wrap party. I mean, it was running on multiple projectors. We had the wrap party in Dobbs's laboratory set with all those projectors. So all those projectors were running with, with our, you know, eight millimeter footage. So anyways, and then, uh, Brian just put the footage away and it just been sitting in his basement and suddenly he when we talked about doing this 4k restoration Brian says you know I have all this eight millimeter footage and we got oh my god so we digitized um, all of the eight millimeter footage and they sent it to me and I edited it and you know, I mean, you know, a lot of it was absolute crap <laughs> and a lot of it was way too embarrassing. <laughs> of course. But we, you know. we cut it down to 35 minutes of really great stuff. And then Brian and Steve Poster and Dustin Bernard, you know, who's now a major producer, but back then was our production assistant. Um, the, the four of us watched the, the cut and narrated it. And, you know, because it was all silent. And um, it, it's quite fun. It's a really, it's a fun half hour. Um, and it's, it's there as an extra on the, on the 4K. That's wonderful to hear. Yeah, it, it, it's really funny. There's some very funny stuff in there. <laughs> Plus, I, I have just like a quick question about your casting. You Besides James Farentino, Jack Albertson, you had Melanie Anderson and Robert England in this cast. Right. What was it like working with all those people? 
Well, Melody was great. I mean, Melody had just come off Flash Gordon, and I mean, you know, we Melody got cast because we thought Flash Gordon was going to be a giant hit, and that would be a feather in our cap. Unfortunately, um, Dead and Buried did much better than Flash Gordon. Um, but uh, Melody was great to work with. She was just absolutely fabulous. And and England and I had, were friends. Um, we'd, we'd worked together before. And I wanted him in this movie. And I mean, you know, he was just an actor named Robert England back then. I mean, he, he, nobody knew who he was. And I, I just, I just have always thought that, that Robert was an amazing presence. And it's funny because he's also interviewed on the 4K. And when he was interviewed, he said, well, I think they cast me because of my face. And um, it's funny because he has a total different recollection of how he got in the movie. I think actually he forgot that he'd been in another one of my films before. But I mean, you know, he and I are still friends. And I, I think uh, you know, he calls me his ready friends. <laughs> Um, I, I cast him before he was ever cast as Freddy. So, um, but, uh, you know, it was, it was great. And, I mean, I had lots of great, great character actors in, in, uh, in Dead and Buried. It was still um, uh, Estelle Omens, who um, was, had been in Dog Day Afternoon, plays the sheriff's secretary. And uh, I don't know. There's there's lots and lots and lots of people in in Denver who are great, great character actors. Can I ask a, a question about not about that movie? Uh, I was just going trolling to the IMDb as I, I have wanted to, and I see a movie, Bigfoot in Paradise. With uh, nothing about it, I don't suppose you could tell us anything about the plot of that one. Bigfoot in Paradise? Yes. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> well, neither does IMDb, which is okay. It's fun going through these things. You did uh, The Glow, and I'm pretty IMDb. sure I read the original book when that came out back in the 70s. The Glow is... Um... The, the, <laughs> the Glow is a, is a story all into itself. The, yes. I wrote The Glow for New Line with Arthur Sarkissian as the producer. I wrote that for them in 1988. Wow. Um, and uh, Arthur hired me to write that. And I wrote the script. And then... There was a big changeover of executives at um, at New Line, and the script got lost in the thing. And then Arthur left New Line and went off and made some great movies over the next few years. In the meantime, I had sold several television series during that time, and the script just kind of floated away into nowhere. Although I think it's one of at, at that time I think it was one of the best scripts I'd written. And um, uh, and anyhow, then in like 19, 
97 or 98, something like that. I was having dinner with an executive from Paramount who was a friend of mine and he said, let's make a movie. Come on, you've been doing all this television. Time to come back and make another movie. And, and I said, well, um, he said, what do you got that's really scary and good that you want to do? And I brought up the glow and he read the glow and he bought it for Paramount. And we were literally about to start pre-production of Paramount when he called me and said, well, I'm leaving Paramount and I'm taking your script with me. And oh. he said, don't worry about it, we're going to get it made. And I said, where are you going? And he said, 20th Century Fox Television Studios. Nice. And I said, I don't want to make this as a television movie. You know, I, I, I could have made it as a television movie before. And I don't want to make it as a television movie. And said, well, basically, I was told, you don't have a choice. We bought it. We own it. Oh, wow. It is a television movie. And then they sold the television movie that they were going to make. I, I did the script. But um, they hired a director who, uh, this guy couldn't direct traffic in a one-horse town. Ooh. Was an unbelievably bad director and who had done like one television movie that was awful and for some reason the executive at, at, at Fox Television thought that he would be the right person for this and she, she couldn't have been wrong, more wrong anyways this guy made a mess of the movie when it was all over, they called me in and asked me if I could try and fix it because it couldn't even be shown. Oh man! And, and I, you know, I basically I looked at it and uh, said, "Yeah, we could reshoot it." And they said, "No, you, we don't have the money to do that. It's a television movie, and it just got to." So, anyways, I brought in an editor and and uh, and and some other people, and and we did what we could do to take it from an F minus to a C minus. And it was shown a couple of times on Fox and then disappeared, thank God, because it's absolutely awful. Yes. And, um, as a matter of fact, <laughs> I will just tell you that at the moment we are endeavoring to get the rights back to remake it. Oh, well, that's cool. because I remember the plot took fairly well. And I, th I thought it was something that would play well now. It would. It actually, I think, would be a better movie now than it was then, and especially, you know, I'm. Uh, we're if we get the rights back, I'm going to do a rewrite on the script, and we're going to probably look for a, a, a woman director. There you go. And as it is a woman's story, you know, the the victim and the hero are the same woman, so it's it's. Uh, it's it and it's really her story jackie who's the main character it's the whole story is jackie's story she she's she's the, the intended victim and she's the one that saves everybody else in the end and um and she's an amazingly strong woman character so, now let, let's let's go back to the beginning for uh, uh for a little bit i do want to ask you about the first film that you, the first, your first theatrical feature that you directed, Deathline. Uh, 
how did that come about to go to work for the Latin company and talk about working with uh, on this particular intense subject of uh, of cannibalism and uh, uh, and uh, you know these under uh, you know underground murders and uh, and, and things like that or working with uh, Donald Pleasance and Christopher Lee well Deathline is my firstborn, <laughs> so it is a very special place in my yeah. heart. Yeah. Um, I was, I was, I had a very successful career going doing commercials at the time, and um, uh, my commercials producer, um, who was a New Yorker, and we were both expats living in London, and we were we were working for Robin Hardy. Uh, who went on to do Wicker Man sometime in the, after that. And um, so anyways, this, this expat American who was my producer was a guy named Jonathan Demme, <laughs> who uh -huh. went on to make a little movie called Silence of the Lambs. Um, and uh, so Jonathan and I were making commercials and um, you know, we were doing, we were having quite a bit of success, and uh, everybody kept saying to me, "You should do a feature. You should do a feature," and you know, and saying to Jonathan, "You should produce the feature. You should produce a feature." So, we kind of said, "Well, how do you do that?" And they said, "You got to write scripts." So Jonathan and I started writing together, and we wrote a whole bunch of scripts. We sold a number of them, um, and uh, nothing really got made. Um, and then we had written a bunch of scripts that we never got made, and um, uh, everybody said they were too political because you know we were young expat Americans, um, and uh, you know politics were half of our lives, if not more than half of our lives back then. So, anyways. Um, We'd written one script that almost got made, and the, and the head of the studio that would make it said, you know what, why don't you guys get away from all this politics stuff and write a good horror film? So Jonathan and I are off doing a, a Procter & Gamble commercial, <laughs> about as far away from a, from a horror film as you could be. Not and, really. <laughs> and I came up with an idea and the produce the agency producer on the shoot that we were on was a guy named Kerry Jones, who uh, was a writer. He had just published a novel and blah, blah, blah. And um, Kerry and I were really good friends. And I told Kerry this idea that I had and he loved it. He said, let's write it. So while we were on location shooting this Procter & Gamble commercial for three weeks, it was a big, big campaign. Um, they, the budget of the commercial was about 10 times the budget that <laughs> we ended up with the deadline. Wow. Um, and uh, Carrie and I wrote the script while we were on, on you know, shooting the commercial. And then, um, showed it to Jonathan. Jonathan said, I loved it. This is great. He says, you know, my friend Paul Mislansky's going to be in town. And he just did a movie for Big Cantor and Ella Jr. And um, can I give it to him? And I said, absolutely. So Jonathan gives the script to Paul. Paul reads the script. Paul gives the script to Jay Cantor. Jay Cantor reads the script. 
we get a call from Jay Cantor, we want to make your movie. And we, they wanted to buy my script. So Jonathan went in to meet with Jay. And, and what Jonathan did for me for commercials was Jonathan sold me, you know, he was my producer and he sold me for commercials. So he went in and sold me to Jay Cantor to uh, direct the movie. And Jonathan was going to co-produce with Paul Mislansky. And uh, then what happened was Jonathan went off to Los Angeles to shoot a commercial with another one of the guys that worked with us, Joe Viola. And they met Roger Corman while they were there. And Corman was impressed with Jonathan, offered him a job. Jonathan called me and said, I just got offered a job by Roger Corman. I said, well, if you don't take it, you, <laughs> you know, you're fucking crazy. And um, so Jonathan took the job with, uh, with Corman and, and I went on to do Deathline with Paul Mislansky producing on his own without Jonathan. I don't think Paul Mislansky needed anybody to help him. He produced quite a number of movies. And we had Jay Cantor and Alan Ladd Jr. as the executive producers. And um, made Deathline. And we made it for pennies because I wanted to make it for pennies. I mean, we could have had a much bigger budget, and I didn't want a bigger budget. And I had my reasons set. I also didn't have enough time because. <laughs> So booked with commercials, I only had three weeks clear to make the movie. So, and I knew I could put an amazing crew together. It was, you know, I, I, in London at that time, there, the, there was a one degree difference from features to commercials. So everybody who did, you know, big, big features also did commercials in between features because it paid a lot more. And so I had these unbelievable folks around me and I got Alex Thompson to be the DP and uh, just up and down the line, I had the most amazing crew possible on Deathline. And uh, sorry, I'm just trying to kill a mosquito. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> you know, I have a question, a technical question, because that's what I do. Um, I work in film out here, uh, on lower budget films, as we like to say, uh, or zero budget films, as we often say. Um, but when you talk about, okay, so we had a, a low budget. Uh, when you talk about it as being a low budget, does that mean that uh, the camera people and gaffers and all those um, were working cheap or were they working for uh, standard fee at that time? Everybody, uh, worked, everybody worked for scale. Okay, so it was all for scale. So. Yeah, we, we made that film for 86,000 uh, pounds, which at that time was about $180,000. Wow. And that was all in. That was including paying Christopher Lee and paying Donald Pleasance. Wow. Christopher Lee, uh, <laughs> you know, when Carrie and I wrote the movie, we wrote it with Donald in mind. And and I was just tenacious about getting Donald to do it. And I actually flew to New York while he was doing Man in the Glass Booth and, um, and talked him into doing the movie. And when, once we had Donald, everybody else just was crawling out of the woodwork to be in the movie because at that time, Donald Pleasance was the actor's actor. I mean, he, he won Oscars and BAFTAs and he, 
he was doing Man in the Glass Boots, which he won a Tony for, well, you know, right then, right at that time. And, you know, he was, he was the actor's actor. I mean, he was the go-to actor in England. And um, so Christopher, who was a friend of Paul's, Paul and Christopher had done several movies together over the years. And Christopher called Paul and said, you're doing this movie with Donald Pleasance in London and I haven't gotten an offer. <laughs> and Paul said to him, he said, Chris, you make more per picture than our entire budget on this film. And Christopher said, I'll tell you what, you give me a one-on-one -on -one scene with Donald Pleasance and I will do it for scale. Wow. And, and Paul said, are you serious? And, and Chris said, absolutely. So Paul calls me and tells me, he says, write a scene. <laughs> and that scene that, that Chris is in was not originally a scene we were going to shoot. It was only a telephone conversation. And so okay. Gary and I sat down and expanded it to a real one-on-one -on -one scene. And, uh, and we shot it. I understand that from Internet Movie Database that you had some difficulty shooting Christopher and Donald into the same or putting them in the same shot because Christopher is six foot five and Donald is five foot six. That's uh, true. That explain true. that. It was impossible to do a two shot the two of them and okay. not make Donald look like a midget or Christopher look like a giant. I mean there was a, a, a over a foot difference in their height and 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 Christopher refused to work on his knees <laughs> and Donald refused to work on a box. So I had to figure out how to do this. So I shot the entire scene in singles at eye level. The, the camera on Donald was at his eye level and he looked straight into the camera. And Christopher worked, the camera was at his eye level on him and he looked straight into the camera. So that when I cut it, they looked like they were the same height. <laughs> um, nice. And what I did with the scene is I started with Donald in extreme close-up so that he really filled the screen and shot Christopher from across the room. And then every line of Christopher's, I moved the camera closer and closer and closer to Christopher until he became a giant head towards the end of the scene. And I did the opposite with Donald, where every shot, every line of Donald's, the camera moved back away from him. And so, because what happens in the scene is that Donald's the, the, big, the big shot in the scene when the scene starts, and Christopher belittles him through the whole scene. So Christopher becomes a bigger and bigger and bigger menace in the scene, and Donald becomes less and less and less. Until the very end of the scene, Christopher sits down and then I could do a two shot with the two of them where they were equal size. Then Donald moves to the camera and becomes big again and makes a, a remark to, to his sergeant, to Sergeant Rossington that puts Donald back up on top again. And so it was really fun using the camera to, to, you know, to talk to the audience like that. Well, that's how you get the work done. You know, you, you've got to make it look good. And it isn't always as easy as uh, that movie with uh, was it uh, Karloff and Vincent Price, both uh, mature gentlemen 
doing the sorcerer's battle decided oh, to have the it raven down. Yeah. <laughs> well, Deathline has, you know, Deathline was a very important movie to me, and I, and I just really wanted to make it good, and I guess I, I succeeded because, you know, in the, at the millennium, it was named one of the 10 most important British horror films of the 20th century. Oh, that is awesome. And then five or six years ago, the BFI published a list of the 10 great British films by American directors, not horror, the 10 great films by American directors. And, and Deathline was included in that list. I was right there between Stanley Kubrick and Sidney Lumet, and I, I couldn't fucking believe it. <laughs> yeah. So, but you can go on the BFI, the BFI website and, and, and look up the, the 10 great films, by, 10 great British films by American directors, and it's right there. And it's the, the company I'm keeping with Richard Lester and, and, and Kubrick and Lumet, and it's just- Fantastic list. I do have, I do have a quick question uh, that I know Anthony's going to ask in a second. But you also worked, not necessarily, uh, you worked on Poltergeist three, but you also worked on a TV series based off of that same movie title called Poltergeist: The Legacy. How did you come up with that? Um. I, I was hired on Poltergeist the Legacy. They, I was actually asked to do that show from the beginning, and I turned I turned down season one because I, I didn't like what they wanted to do with it. I, I thought if they were going to do it, they should do it as an anthology instead of this made up legacy situation. Then in this in this when they were going into the second season. Um, uh, they were having some problems with the show. Got some dogs barking outside. Um, they they uh, were having some problems with the show, and Showtime asked if I would come in, and because I had produced a lot of television series at that point, and so um, Showtime asked if I would come in and take over as an executive producer, and I, I only did one season. I just came in and tried to get the show fixed, and um, I, I didn't enjoy it that much, to tell you the truth. Oh. Uh, there's a few episodes of that season that I'm really proud of. I, I think we elevated the show considerably from season one to season two. That's a fair enough question, or answer, actually. Anthony, you with us? I'm right here. No, he's not. I got more questions. <laughs> go for no. it. I, I was going to talk about Poltergeist 3 a little bit, uh, but go on now. You had a question? Oh, well, you know, what would you say to someone like me uh, who has ideas for movies and and thinks that they has a scene a little bit, so it has a little bit of a foot in the door, has some idea that's not just complete garbage. What do you think I should do with uh, my idea? Should I Try to go sit out on your front doorstep with uh, a stack of scripts and throw them at you as you go by, or, or what? <laughs> well, I'm, you know, basically, I've, I have been more or less retired, or I tried to retire um, <laughs> about 20 years ago. And you and me both. 
And, you know, I'm, I'm, I left LA and I moved back home to Chicago. Um, and I got here and everybody kept saying to me, oh, you, you had to bring some work to Chicago. So I put a couple of television series on the air from here. Um, but, you know, it's been a long time since I've made a movie. I mean, I, I made one movie since I've been in Chicago and it was a film I did just for myself that I self-financed. And it was just something that I wanted to do. And never released it either. And not, not that I'm that I think it shouldn't be released. Uh, I, I I don't apologize for it in any way. I think it's really good. But it's just something that I just did for myself. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of people have asked me to. <laughs> it's on a lot of people's bucket list to see this film before they die. But um, uh, it, it's just mine for the time being. But you know, I don't, the, the business has changed so much. You know, I, I do a, a Zoom uh, meeting every Thursday night with a whole bunch of young filmmakers, and and I listen to the problems they're going through and what what what's happening in production. The problems never change. I mean, the, the studios lie to you. They fuck you around. They yes you no. Know, um, but you know that that's still all the same. But getting the films made today is just such a different ball of wax from 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 what it was back. I mean, I was really lucky. I mean, you know, I wrote Deathline. Um, it got into the right hands through the right people, and boom! And there I was, 25 years old getting on a, on a set for the first time. My first movie with Donald Pleasance and Norman Rossington staring me in the face and saying, okay, boss, what do you want to do? <laughs> you know? And, and, you know, and I made a film that, that was an incredible success. I mean, it, it, it just everywhere except in the United States because AIP did to, to raw meat. But, um, uh, but you know that just and, uh, boom, boom. but then Ronnie came to me and said, you know, I want to make Dead and Buried, and Alien got released, and Alien was a, a smash hit the first weekend, and literally, you know, Alien opened on Friday, and by Monday we had a deal to make Dead and Buried, and um, it was because of Ronnie, not because of me. I mean, they wanted to make any movie Ronnie wanted to make, he could make. And so, you know, we made Dead and Buried, and Dead and Buried uh, came out. Dead and Buried segued right into Vice Squad. Vice Squad was a, a, an incredible hit. And and then, you know, I just took it easy for a while. I, I you know, I, I didn't need the money, and I, I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. So. I just kind of sat back for a while and I probably wouldn't have even done another movie except that I was doing television. I had several television series on the air that I was producing. And um, uh, then Jay and Laddie, who I had done Deathline with, called me and said, we want you to do Poltergeist 3. And, uh, um, oh, actually, no, I'm, I'm wrong. I, I, Bob Ramey, who, who had been a, uh, a real hero to me for a long time, because Bob Ramey was the head of Abco Embassy when I made Dead and Buried, and 
and we went right on to do um, Vice Squad. And Bob Ramey called me and asked me to do Wanted Dead or Alive. So I did Wanted yes. Dead or Alive for, uh, he was in trouble with that movie. They, they, they had sold the movie based on the title and it was already booked into theaters. <laughs> and and they, they had a, the script came in and the script was awful. I mean, it was just dreadfully awful. And Bob called me and said, I need your help. You got to come rewrite this script and direct this movie for me. And, uh, and that's what I did. I went in with Brian Taggart and the two of us rewrote that script. And like, we didn't rewrite it. We did a page one, came up with a new story and everything and wrote it in like two and a half weeks. Wow. And started pre-production. We kept rewriting while we were in pre-production, but we had to start pre-production because they had a delivery date on this film. And uh, so anyways, I made Wanted Dead or Alive. And then I'm like in post-production on Wanted Dead or Alive when when Jay and Laddie called me and asked me to do uh, Poltergeist. In the meantime, I was doing a television series a pilot with Gene Simmons because Gene and I became friends and Gene owned a property called Sable which was based on John Sable freelance comic books yes kind of a superhero comic book and so Gene had a deal with ABC to do Sable and ABC said you know what if you can get Gary to come and write and write write the script and direct the pilot will give you a go on the on the show, and um, and that's what we did. And so I was doing Sable, and I was doing Sable at the same time as I was doing Poltergeist Three. I didn't want to do Poltergeist Three. I mean, I, I when they called me and asked me to do it, I said no, thank you. Um, it just it's supernatural in that kind of way is not my it's not my thing and. Um, there was really no room to do what I do or what I like to do in making movies in, in, in doing a, a, a second sequel to Poltergeist. Um, I was, I had been asked to do Poltergeist 2 uh, and I, I, but I wasn't available. Um, and uh, I was doing a pilot in New York when, when they were doing that. And I, so anyway, so they came back to me for Poltergeist 3 and I finally said, okay, but only on two conditions. One, that I shoot it in Chicago in the John Hancock building, because I always wanted to make a movie in the John Hancock building. I think it's one of the wonders of the world, that building. And, uh, and two, all the effects will be practical. No CGI. No opticals. I want to do every effect practical because that was part of my background, and I I did that in commercials for years. And uh, you know, I had worked in an optical house, and I really knew how to turn a, a, a camera on set into an optical camera. And and I just said I can do all the effects in camera. And the negative that goes out to make the release prints will be a first generation negative from frame one to the end, except for the titles, because hard to do titles practical. And um, uh, they agreed. 
And so that, to, to me, Older Guys 3 was really a, an exercise in, in, in practical effects. And, um, and something I'm really proud of. Facts, unfortunately, the, mo the, the movie itself, I'm not that happy with, but I'm really happy with the effects. I think it was marred by um, Heather Rourke's untimely passing yeah. um, because she was going through, uh, she had Crohn's disease while filming. No, and was um, she was taking cortisone injections, yeah. right? And it began to show, and she was a little. Um, so I, I know anyone who's kind of a fan of Heather O'Rourke, you kind of have a feeling it's like bittersweet. No, it's a it's a good film. I saw it when I was I was a kid. Uh, came out in '88, so um, I was still in the cartoons, but I, I probably watched this anyways. I was on v, uh, VHS, um, but later I found out that it was her her final film, and it was kind of sad because she was always you know a really bright spot in the series. Oh, she was amazing, and it, you know they were treating her for Crohn's disease, and that's not what it was. And that's why she died. Yeah. Um, she she was taking steroids. We had to come totally deal with her ballooning out and coming back down in size. And um, uh, you know, Stan was going to do Poltergeist three, but he wasn't available. And so he turned me on to Dick Smith, who had been his mentor. And and Dick Smith. You know, Bay did Older Guys three, and um, you know it, it was funny because when when I said to Jay and Laddie that I wanted to do it all practical, one of my tricks and up my sleeve was going to be Stan Winston. But you know, so Stan Winston turned me on to his the person who taught him everything he knew, and it was unbelievable getting to work with Dick Smith. It was just absolutely fantastic. But oh yeah. Um, uh, and uh, wh what a guy. And anyways, um, but you know, we did have a problem with, with Heather and, uh, and the thing was that our shooting schedule was quite long because of the fact that we were doing all practical effects. And then to save some, the studio wanted to save some money and they asked me to do a less complicated ending on the film that I originally planned to do. And so we dropped the original ending and we did a, an alternate ending and the alternate ending was absolutely awful. I didn't want to do it. I, I thought it was a bad idea and I told the studio I thought it was a bad idea, but they said, well, let's shoot it. If we don't like it, we'll go back and, and do your ending. And so anyways, we we shot that ending. We pre we put it we patched it together we previewed it the audience reactions proved that <laughs> it was true we shouldn't have shot that ending and so we went back to prepare to do uh to, to do another ending in the meantime in between i shot a pilot for a TV show while we were while everybody was working on all the special effects, and we were going to move all the sets back to Los Angeles because to shoot the ending that I wanted to shoot was going to take like a, a lot of special effects people, many many more than we had in Chicago to shoot it. So everything was moved back to Chicago, and I shot this pilot and finally finished shooting the pilot. 
and we were getting ready to uh, to, to shoot the ending that, that we originally wanted to shoot when my phone rang one morning and it was David Warblow who was Heather's agent and he said um, can you be on a, a, a conference call this afternoon at the studio and I said sure so um, Barry Bernardi who was who produced Poltergeist uh, 3 for me um, was happened to be in Chicago because uh, we were working on something else and so he and I were in an apartment in Chicago and we were hooked on to this <sighs> this conference call and Jay Cantor was on the call and Alan Ladd Jr. and Dick Berger all from MGM and David Wardlow and David opens the conversation with guys have got some really horrible news for you Heather passed away this morning and I just uh, I mean I loved that little girl I mean my girlfriend at the time and I wanted to adopt her we wanted to steal her from from her parents and adopt her we just loved her we used to steal her for weekends and, <laughs> and go off and do things with her I mean she was just such an amazing amazing person and I, I was devastated I, I was totally devastated and Laddie just said Gary you better get on a plane and fly out we gotta figure out what so Barry and I got on a plane that afternoon and flew to LA and first thing the next morning we were in Laddie's office and we said what are we going to do and, and I said well I know what I want to do I want to just not finish the film and uh, I mean it's going to be very hard for me to walk back on the set of this film without Heather and Laddie and Jay both agreed and, the next couple of days were really spent with Heather's uh, funeral and, and all of that, which was pretty devastating. I was a pallbearer at her funeral. And um, one of the worst days of my life. And uh, anyhow, then MGM came back and told Jay and Laddie, whether you guys want to finish this film or not, this film's going to get finished. We got a lot of money invested in it. And so it just became for me to walk away and let somebody else finish it or I should finish it. And Jay talked me into finishing it. So we wrote that half-assed ending that's on the film now because the other ending that we had shot, we hated. And um, uh, so we just shot a, a, an ending with a double for Carol Ann and um, it just it was really fucked. <laughs> and in fact, yeah. the, the guy that yeah. that played that played uh, Laura Flynn Boyle's boyfriend in the movie, he was in the middle of finals at school and couldn't make it. And I said, "Oh, who cares? <laughs> He'll be missing from the scene. Nobody will miss him." And we just shot that, that one shot ending that that uh, that we did and. Um, in LA and slapped it on the back end of the film and that was it. And, and, I, and I walked away from the film after that. But, um, you know, so, you know, 
it's not a bad movie. It's just a movie that leaves a bad taste in my mouth because it was a very I, I, difficult situation. Very I, understandable. I am yes. very, very proud of the effects. And th that movie, um, <laughs> it was funny. Uh, Andrea Sabasetti, you know, who's the executive editor of Rue Mort, she just loves that film and, and feels that it is an encyclopedia of, of practical effects and, and asked me to do a lecture in Toronto on those effects, which I did about five years ago or six years ago. Subsequently, I can't count how many times I've done that lecture. And it, it's really fun. It, it's really fun to do the lecture. It's a three-hour lecture. And, and talking about all the practical effects in that movie. And actually, I'm about to do it in July. I'm doing it in Slovenia. <laughs> it's the first time I've done, the, done, the, done the, the, the seminar since COVID started. Congratulations on that. I was just going to ask, what do you have coming up next? So if anyone wants to know. Well, well, that's one of the things, and you know, and then I'll probably go back onto the film festival circuit. I'm sure I'm going to do um, the, uh, you know, the Poltergeist lecture. I know that also the Music Box, you know, which is this great theater in Chicago, is you know, a great renovated theater in Chicago. Um, it's you know one of the only movie palaces left. And they, they do fundraisers all the time. And they've asked me if I would do the Poltergeist lecture as a fundraiser for the music box. And I said, yes, but I don't know when we're going to do it yet. But uh, you know, I've, I've done it. I've done it. I did it in Mexico City. I mean, I literally have done it all over the world. I've done it all over the United States. And I've done it in Mexico, in, in the UK twice, uh, in Spain. Um, now I'm doing it in Slovenia. <laughs> awesome. Well, I want to go ahead and plug, uh, before we wrap it up here, Gary, I wanted to go ahead and let everyone know once again, Dead and Buried um, from the creators of Alien. This was uh, directed by Gary Sherman. This is a three-disc limited edition, chock full of, um, of special uh, features that you're going to enjoy. 4K restoration, everything. Yes, yeah. absolute restoration from a 35 millimeter uh, film. So you know all the information is there, and I'm sure it's going to be uh, put out really nice. Um, collectible booklet, lenticular slipcover, uh, location stills, um, new yeah, behind-the-scenes commentary. My Gingold wrote a wrote the the. The, the, the little booklet that says it's absolutely fantastic. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, includes a 35 minute Stan Winston uh, 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 interview right. on, the, uh, on the disc. And that, that's worth it for me. That, I'm like, yeah, that's all you had to put in there. <laughs> so, and Robert so talks about his involvement. And then, you know, and the, the eight millimeter footage is just. Well, I want to thank you very much, Gary, for uh, coming on our podcast and talking about the history of your films. It's very enlightening, and uh, good luck on your uh, future projects. Well, thank you very much.
keeps wanting to have the different scenes. It's like Al Pacino, you know, Godfather 3. I, I want it out. He pulled me back in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm becoming a professional and retiring. Well, thank you, Jerry. As uh, Mark Twain once said about smoking, quitting smoking is easy. I've done it lots of times. Mm. So, there you go. There you go. <laughs> well, well, somebody asked uh, somebody asked George Burns about uh, about uh, you know about dying, and uh, he said it's reaching his hundredth birthday. He goes, "No, I don't think so. It's been done before." Yeah. It's been done. <laughs> Or Adolf Zucker on his 100th birthday said, if I would have known I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Gary. Thank you, Gary. Thank you very much, Gary, for coming on. Yes, thank you. All right, take care, everybody. That's our show for the evening. Uh, for Kevin Nicholson, Joe Flynn, Alamega, and myself, Anthony DeRowan, and our special guest, Gary Sherman, wishing you guys to have a good night. Bye-bye. Take care, everyone. Bye. Good night, Good night, and mind the doors. <laughs> <Here's the window. laughs> nice. Oh, we got to keep that in. Keep yes. that in. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, man.